There are many ways for a mission to fail. If you think with me about the Cassini space program, just for a moment. Uh, the Cassini-Saturn space program, uh, the Cassini craft was launched in 1997. Seven years later, 2004, it enters into the orbit around Saturn, therein becoming the very first spacecraft ever to observe Saturn from orbit. Pretty impressive. Um, over the course of its mission, it, a lot of fascinating, amazing, astonishing things that you could kind of check off there from mission control back here on Earth, one of which was actually to send a lander, if you can imagine, a lander from uh, Cassini itself as it's orbiting Saturn and moving around in the moons. It sends this or this lander down to uh, one of Saturn's moons, and there it then gathers some data there from the surface. Well, anyway, over the course of 20 years, the 20-year mission of, of Cassini, thousands and thousands of pictures taken, an immense amount of data gathered. By, by any measure, it, it was an overwhelming success, the Cassini space program. In fact, Friday a week ago, when here the controllers here on the ground went ahead and sent it into a controlled crash at several thousand miles per hour as it entered into Saturn's atmosphere, really it still did something remarkable. It became the first probe into Saturn's atmosphere. Even in its death throes, it was functioning in, in an astonishing level of, of uh, capacity and ability according to its design. Great success. That said, there were so many ways this thing could have gone wrong. I mean, right, you, you could have in 97, it could have been a failure at the launch site. We we're talking about a controlled explosion, right? That's really what you're talking about when a, a rocket, a launch of a rocket is a controlled engineered explosion, sending it up to, to break out of uh, Earth's gravity. So you, you, you could have gone awry there. It could have been, you know, some system failure on board, given all the complexities of what's going on there. Could have been a telemetry uh, mistake. You know, maybe somebody programmed it wrong. I mean, just by an, a hair of an inch. On this side, you could be off by miles on the other end. Maybe hit by space debris, right? You're talking about a distance of, of, of immense distance of just millions of miles going out there. Just so many things could have gone wrong. And yet, NASA, the European Space Agency, working in conjunction with one another, smashing success. They worked so hard over the course of all those years such that it would not be a failure. Okay, where am I going with this? The Christian the individual Christian and the Christian church, the assembly of believers, also has and have a mission. And there are many things that can go wrong with it. But our Lord, the one who's given us this mission and charged us with this task, labors tirelessly to equip us with himself that we would then press on in his name and for his glory, that we would not fail. Revelation 1, that's where we are here this morning. That's our text. I know, some of you are grimacing like, oh boy, Revelation, this is going to get heavy. Hang in there. Last book of the Bible, if you're trying to find it, so just you know, go all the way to the, as far over to the right as you can go, uh, and uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9, reading on through the end of the chapter. Uh, that would be verse 20. So Revelation 1, starting in verse 9, on through verse 20. Hear now the word of God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom 
and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit in the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, let's pray together for a moment. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have together here. Uh, we know that there is a blessing explicitly stated even in the reading of this particular book within the corpus of the, the whole of the Scriptures, but we know really that there is a blessing in the reading and the contemplation and study and application of all your word. That said, uh, we come needy to the task, uh, even just trying to understand. Um, we come needy, uh, needing you to instruct us, needing you to, to teach us, uh, giving us clarity, uh, both in our minds and where necessary, com comfort and conviction of heart. Uh, none of us comes really able to take this on the understanding, much less the application. So we are asking for your help. We need it more than we know. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we should probably start off by being clear of the context here. So this, as stated, is the Apostle John. He had been the youngest of the apostles early on in Jesus' earthly ministry. He is now the only remaining one. He is a very old man in his 90s. It's the late first century. He's writing from the island of Patmos. He is in exile. We don't know really all the exact circumstances there, but that was a certainly in that context, in that time in the Roman Empire, that was one of the ways that you could get rid of a political problem, rabble-rouser, just whatever. So he's there, Patmos, historical place, uh, historical setting. His audience, seven communities, seven churches there in an, Asia no, an area known then as Asia Minor, known today, we would call it Turkey. Roughly, that's, that's the geographical realm where these, uh, these people were. They're calling those seven communities, those seven bodies of believers, those seven churches, their calling was to be a counterculture within the culture that they lived. Their calling, their charge, was to be living witnesses, living testimonies to the, the power and grace of the gospel 
and the king and the message of the kingdom that they bore. That was their charge. That was their assignment. That was their, their task there in their historical context. That said, they were also undergoing an assault. A threefold strategy tactic by Satan meant to counter what the Lord Jesus is sending them there to do in their context. It's very obvious. It comes out uh, here again and again in the themes of Revelation, the things that John is touching on. Uh, is very obvious. One would be the dangers, the assaults of, of violent, systemic persecution. This is decades after the just sort of, if I put it this way, occasional, somewhat haphazard, almost random persecution of Nero, roughly mid-first century. This is the emperor Domitian. This is systematic. He is trying to wipe this movement out. And so you, we have historical records of Christians nailed to crosses, impaled on stakes, covered in pitch and lit a fire. We have historical documents indicating that some were tied up their limbs to horses, four different horses. The horses then sent you are torn asunder. Some were eaten by beasts in the Colosseums. Some had holes drilled in their heads with molten lead poured in. And others, it was more merciful, were simply beheaded. That's all historical record. It's a fact. That's what the early church faced. They had this task, they had this assignment, and they were under assault. What did Jesus give them that they would be faithful witnesses, that they would be able to stand and withstand that assault. What did he give them? A revelation of himself. Chapter 1. The book of Revelation. The unveiling. What did he give them? A revelation of himself. Now this is more than a historical footnote. I mean, it's all historical facts, but it's more than an historical footnote because followers of Jesus today, his churches, these communities, one of which is existing right here, you know, in, in, represented in this room, have the same calling, have the same task, have the same assignment to be a counterculture in the culture in which he has placed us, to be witnesses, to be living testimonies, of the power and wonder of the gospel of grace and the king and his coming kingdom. It's the same task. It's the same assignment and the same satanic assault, the same threefold strategy and, and tactics. What has he given us? What do we have? The same thing they had, a revelation of Jesus. A revelation of the King Himself. What's going on here is simply this. In order for us to then be faithful witnesses, Jesus, the living Christ, has given us a revelation from Him and of Him. From Him and of Him. And it comes out in two ways in the text. You can see this. It's broken down in the outline there in your, in your uh, bulletin. First, a revelation of His glorious person. And then a revelation of His good and great promises. 
Those two things, we're going to look at that just for those two things together just for a few minutes. So first, his his glorious person. Now, now before I go any further with that, I just need to say this as as an aside, you know, what it takes to read literature like this and to rightly understand it. John has a vision. He sees this. He's trying to describe something that words can't describe. He's trying to, to, to put before us some glimmer of a shadow, of a wisp of an understanding of what he experienced and saw with the exalted Jesus there before him. He's using, he's trying to convey something to us that no artist could capture on a canvas, no photographer could capture on film, no poet could possibly capture with all the most wondrous lines. It's impossible. Language fails, but it's all we have to work with. So understand these are images, and they're meant to convey deeper significant truths and meaning here. So what does John see? First he sees one like a son of man, which so obviously points way back to centuries before what Carrie was reading earlier from Daniel 7, the son of man standing there before the Ancient of Days, who therein receives all authority, all power, ultimate majestic dominion over all things. This is who John is seeing. At the somehow, it's the same one that he knew and walked with and lived with decades before, but so different at the same time. It's the exalted Jesus. That's who he sees. That's how he's identified. The Son of Man, by the way, if you don't know, is also Jesus' favorite self-designation. It's how he delighted to describe himself as the Son of Man. And sometimes people didn't get what he was saying. Sometimes they did. And that caused all the more tension. Okay, what else do we have here? John says he sees one um, outfitted wearing priestly robes with a royal king's sash upon him. In terms of his appearance, he says he has hair, this white hair that clearly conveys wisdom and purity and insight and knowledge beyond any other, with eyes of flame blazing, clearly conveying. He has, uh, there's a gaze with which he can see through any facade with feet of burnished bronze implying strength and power and of vanquishing conquest over all of his foes who would be foolish enough to stand before him, stand opposed to him. Or the voice, a voice like thundering waters, probably not too much unlike the thundering waters crashing there on the island of Patmos there in the Aegean Sea, but so much, so far beyond that, a voice that trumps all other whispers, or making them nothing more than whispers. A face, a face of unimaginable, unendurable glory and majesty. This is the exalted Jesus. This is who John sees. And it undid him. Absolutely undid him. In a sense, he rightly was afraid. And Jesus in his mercy says, don't. Don't be afraid for what you've seen. Now what does he hear? 
What does he hear? This is just as important in terms of the revelation of Jesus as a person. What does he, what does he say? What are, the, what are the words that this, this exalted Jesus speaks? Well, you see it in verse 17. He says, uh, Fear not, I am the first and the last. The, Jesus is clearly conveying his divinity. Making, if, as though it wasn't obvious before, and it certainly is now what he's saying, explicit. I am the beginning. I am the start. I'm the creator. I am your context. You want, to know, you want to know what the context is of your life and of all things that ever have been and will be? I am your context. I am the beginning. I am the alpha, as he says elsewhere. I am the alpha. He goes on to say, uh, Fear not, I am the first and the last. He says, I am the ending. I am the goal. I am not just an end, I am to be your chief end. I am to be primary. All other things are secondary. Don't get those things confused. Don't think me to be a means towards your ends. I am your end. I am the beginning. I am the ending. I am the first. I am the last. He goes on. And the living one. There in verse 18. I died and behold I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I, just look at the paradox here. I died. And I rose. I died. And I rose. Life is in me, from me, for me. Death has no power. Death has no handle. Death has no grip on me or on those who are mine. I am the living one. Yes, I was dead. I am arisen. That's who I am. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. So you see, what what Jesus is doing here for John, for his readers, for all readers since, is to convey that we would be faithful in our witness, in our, is, is that we would stand as living testimonies to Him, to His grace and glory and goodness. He gives us a revelation of His glorious person. He gives us a revelation of His glorious person. And to the degree that we take that to heart, that will reorient your reality. I mentioned Cassini, Saturn, orbits. It'll give you a whole new orbit. It, it just reorients Everything, as we come to understand that life is from Him and in Him and for Him, He is primary, everything else is secondary, everything else is but a means but to Him. Let me try and illustrate this. So some of you, no doubt, you, you, the Apple users in the room, you iPad owners and iPhone users know that you got a big update this past week, right? right? And that's meant to be an improvement. It's meant to, uh, you know, some upgrades, some better functioning, this and that. And that's great. You know, I hope you got enough memory to, to load it, but, you know, whatever. Understand that that is but an update, an upgrade for an existing operating system. Jesus is no upgrade. He is no improvement to your life. He is a whole new operating system. A whole new one. Completely, utterly new. Now you may be wondering, what does that have to do with 
our being faithful witnesses and standing in the midst of the, the onslaught. And, and all, well, it has everything to do with it. Because who we understand Jesus to be shapes everything in terms of what we understand our lives to be about. Now, who is, again, how does Jesus reveal himself here? As the, 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 the Son of Man, the first and the last, the living one. Again, he is to be primary. If he is understood to be primary, as absolutely, positively first, brooking no rivals whatsoever, I mean, no one, no one or any, no thing is to be even close given who he is, then that has to mean then that we will not, because we cannot, turn aside from him or stop proclaiming the goodness and greatness of this message and of the one whose name we bear simply because things in our lives are not going the way we want. Because he is primary, and those things therein have to be at best secondary. You understand? So just because we're not getting the secondary things that up to this point we've been holding on to tightly and insisting that we have, if we understand that those things are secondary and he is primary, we will not then turn aside from him and give up in our witness and our proclamation in word and in deed, simply because we have not been given the things that we want. What are those things? They're, they're sometimes big, huge, enduring physical health. The respect and approval of your peers. Material comforts. Marital intimacy. A close-knit family. A fulfilling career. Those are all good. Good things. And not a one of them is guaranteed to the follower of Jesus. Not a single one of them. They are good. They are secondary. And it is vital that we understand that. It is vital that what he has guaranteed is himself. He has guaranteed himself, the living one, the first and the last, the Son of Man himself, that we would be faithful, that we would stand. He is granted to us, he is given to us so graciously, so magnificently, a revelation of himself. And part of that is his glorious person, but part of that is also his good promises, his great promises, which is the second point. We see something of that all through this passage. I just want to look at a couple, highlights a few areas where it comes out in particular. There's two things, two promises. First, that is his presence, and then secondly, his protection. And both are, you know, partners of one another. You don't really have much with one unless you have the other. His presence and his protection. His presence with us, we see that... Uh, uh, his, his abiding presence with us there in verses 12 through 13 in this imagery pertaining to the lampstands. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, 
Now, these lampstands understand, lampstands do not create light. They hold it forth in a dark place. And it's clear, John goes on later in verse 20 to explain to us, that these lampstands are symbolic for, the seven lampstands are symbolic for the seven churches that he is addressing. And in fact, some commentators will go so far as to say, even as those are seven historical congregations and communities of faith in those places, given that it's the number seven, it's also meant to imply the universal church. In time, at that time, not just Asia Minor, but beyond, and through time. So including us today. And John is making clear with what he is relaying to us, these lampstands represent the church, the church, the churches, and what? Do, who does he see standing in their midst? Jesus. Jesus is there present in the midst of the lampstands, implying his presence with us, that we are not alone. Despite how things may feel, despite how things may look, despite how things might appear at times, we are not alone. The living, risen, reigning, resurrected, living one is in our midst. He is standing, standing, standing in the midst, in the presence of the lampstands. His lampstands, in fact. His presence with us. That's the first thing. The second also the being his, the promise of his protection of us. You see that with the stars. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. You skip down to verse 20, you discover what in the world is that? As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, literally, this, these stars are messengers. Now, what kind of messengers? There's not unanimous opinion on New Testament commentators on this score. You've got a lot of different ideas, possibilities. Could be earthly messengers, like a courier. Could be heavenly messengers, angels. Could be, possibly even, a way of expressing the, the, the churches themselves. Okay, that doesn't really matter ultimately, because the main thing is what? Who's holding the stars? Who has them in his right hand? They're in clearly conveying his protection. Clearly showing forth he, not just his presence, but his preserving power exercised on behalf for us. For us, his church, his people. Again, that we would be faithful. The living, reigning king, the, the, the living one, the son of man himself, that we would stand, be able to withstand whatever it is that we face, whatever the pressure may be. He is giving us a revelation of these great promises. And to the degree that we grapple with the significance, oh my goodness, of his presence with us. I mean, really let that settle in. That you are not alone. We are not alone. The promise of his presence and the promise of his protection, to the degree that that settles, that will make all the difference. All the difference. Some of you may know, and those of you who don't should, that this past week marked the 80th anniversary of the publication of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. You should have known, right? 
Um, it's rightfully subtitled, There and Back Again. And those of you who don't know, it's the story, the great story, the saga of the shared quest between home-loving Bilbo Baggins and these 13 dwarves who are longing to recover their long-lost treasure there underneath the, uh, the lonely mountain where lies, of course, the terrible dragon Smaug. Okay. It's a grand tale. In many ways, however, that quest is absolutely hinging on the, uh, how shall I say, the influence, the strength, the power of the mighty wizard Gandalf in many respects. The success of the quest is hinging on all, on all of that, which is why at one point in the book, I can't remember how this is conveyed in the films, but in the book, it's why the dwarves feel so desperately discouraged and why they speak, frankly, so rudely at the point where Gandalf tells them that he is leaving them just as they are on the brink of entering the black forest of Mirkwood. Let me read you a quote. You were wanting it. I've got it for you. Goodbye, be good, take care of yourselves, and don't leave the path. The narrator picks up, then he galloped away and was soon lost to sight. Oh, goodbye and go away, grunted the dwarves, all the more angry because they were really filled with dismay at losing him. Now, if you've read the book, and if you've paid any attention at all, you know that this is about the first sensible thing the dwarves have done in the whole story. Because <laughs> they're just nutcases in, in terms of you know, really thinking that the 13 of them, with their burglar, the Hobbit, really have a, a, a chance of getting this treasure back in and of themselves. So this is really the first sensible thing that they've done, is realizing that with Gandalf's departure, they're toast. And it's a dragon, so maybe they are. Gandalf's pre presence and protection was absolutely critical for the success of the mission. Do you see where I'm going with this? It's kind of obvious. I've really set it up here. The Lord's, our Lord's, who is no wizard, His presence and His, his presence with us and His protection of us is absolutely essential in our mission in our task, in this assignment before us. And you know what can happen when you take that to heart? You will be dangerous. Now by that I don't mean violent. I don't mean um, anything of that nature. I, please don't misunderstand. What I mean is there is a sense, though, in the eyes of the world, you will be radical. Something deeply transformative will take place to the degree that you are hearing the, the promises here and, and grappling with them. You will be shameless, and I mean that in the best sense. You will be shameless in the face of the accusations in your head and upon the lips of others. You really will be able to say with all sincerity, you know, you're right. But actually... I'm a whole lot worse than even you think, but it really doesn't matter because Jesus loves me a whole lot more than you could ever imagine. It makes you dangerous in a good way. Fearless, transparent, you know, going forth into these circles of, of influence and spheres of relationships. Transparent. 
able to confess your sin before other people, able to confront others in theirs. You know why? Because you're not worried about what anybody else thinks. Your only concern is what he thinks. And you already know what he thinks. You're not living for anyone's approval but his, and you already have his. So that frees you from the shackles, the chains of fear of wondering, of fear of inordinately caring about the opinions and your poll data. It enables you to take risks. It enables you to take bold steps. It even say bold things. Because you are no longer frozen by worry and anxiety and the fretting of the worst case scenario of what might happen. Because you know whose you are. You know whose presence is with you. You know whose power and protection envelops you. And so you're dangerous. Jesus, that we would be faithful witnesses unto Him, is giving us this revelation of His great, not just His glorious person, but His great promises. That we would be faithful to our King. Testifying, witnessing, and in, in, in all that we are to the King and to His coming. We need so much more than a pep talk. We need so much more than a motivational speaker who will tell you to look deep within yourself. You need, we need so much more than anything, any other resources that anyone or anything on the face of this globe has to give us. I mentioned earlier uh, the pressures and the uh, assaults that the early church endured. Let me circle back to that. It's not just an historical fact that they endured that. It's also, if I can just play with this, it's also an historical fact that they endured that. That is to say, they were faithful. They did withstand. We wouldn't be having this conversation this morning if they weren't, right? I mean, if it died right there in utero in the mid, -first, mid and late first century. By God's grace, they were able to withstand the persecutions the, her the, the false teaching, I, I meant to mention this earlier, but also the, having to under, undergo false teaching, half-baked theology, compromises to what was clearly conveyed in the Scriptures. Or, or the pull, the lure of um, corruption, moral, ethical corruption, the cesspool around them, the draw, the pull into all of that. Able to withstand all of that. How? They were rooted. They were rooted. Some of you may remember a few weeks ago as the remnants of Hurricane Harvey were coming up through, I believe it was a Friday night, a lot of wind, a lot of rain, and in the backwoods behind our house, a great noise. We went out that morning and could see that the, a bit of a transformation in the canopy. There was a lot more light coming in uh, for the rising sun. I went out there a little while later and found... Uh, four huge trees, oaks, easily this big around, easily a hundred plus years old, all four lying on their sides. Get up close, there's a hole in the ground where the roots used to be. You look at the bottom of the trunks and it was really quite shocking. With all the height, very little root system. 
Now, I don't, I don't know enough about the soil and the trees and the species of all of that to tell you why that was. I'm not going to pretend to make that up. Um, but I know what I saw. Those great trees lying on their sides, they could not withstand the storm because there was so little rooting them, literally. What will root us that we can stand in the storm? Whatever form of the storm that may be, what will root us? What will enable us to stand? Jesus. And it begins with the revelation of himself. The revelation of himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for not leaving us to wonder, to stumble in the dark, to try and figure this out, to work up enough courage or gumption or will, uh, but rather you have come knowing exactly what we need, a revelation, an unveiling, a display of you. You have been good enough to grant us to be recipients of this good news. You have been good enough to call us and send us out as instruments in your hand. And then with all of that, good still more to give us this revelation of yourself, that we could be assured and grounded as we go forth. We ask that you would enlarge our vision. Help us to see that with those people, John's first audience, we have the same assignment, under the same pressures, but also under the oversight and in the love of a mighty king who has sent us forth as heralds in his name. We pray in your name. Amen.